Good morning. Let's turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Today we're going to look at verses 1 through 10 together. Last week, Paul pointed to two truths that we just can't forget. And they are God's greatness and our need. Paul, in that text, bowed his knees before the Father out of gratitude for what he has done in Christ. Paul was just stunned at God's saving grace individually and corporately. And this led to to worship, which drove him to pray because prayer and worship, they go hand in hand. Paul prayed for the Ephesian Christians that Christ might dwell in their hearts. This is a permanent resident kind of thing, one where we give Jesus control over our whole beings to make for himself a dwelling that more and more reflects his character, not ours. And so this brings us to chapter 4. Here, Paul immediately builds on the idea of Christ dwelling in us by explaining how we are to walk. Walk here refers to more than just the physical steps that we take each day. Paul is referring to how a person conducts their life. Walk would equal conduct in this case. So let's read the text together. Ephesians 4, 1 through 10. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this time in the word. We pray that you would edify us through the Spirit, by your word today, that we might be images of Christ, bearers of your image more and more. In his name we pray. Amen. So before we talk about what Paul means by walk in a worthy manner, I just want us to first remember where he's writing this book from. Paul intentionally points out in verse 1 that he's writing this letter from prison. And he's also quick to point out something that that many of us have just read right over and missed so far. Paul says he's not a prisoner of Rome, doesn't he? Who's he a prisoner for? The Lord. Rome doesn't hold ultimate power over Paul's life. God does. Paul not only acknowledges God's design in him being in change, he embraces it. He counts himself as a prisoner for the Lord. Now, I realize that it won't fit into our nice and neat theology that God would put Paul in prison, but Paul believed it, and he rejoiced in it. Don't forget, Paul and Silas led a worship service in prison before. So the struggle of being in prison was not something that Paul resented at all. Could it be, then, that we're struggling with something so that God is made more real to us? Is it possible that the big thing that's happening in your life right now is designed by God to get your attention and direct you to deeper faith in Him. Because see, God uses 
things like a prison to transform us into the person he wants us to be, into a person that trusts him more and more and more clearly reflects Christ. So before Paul actually gives them a description of what a worthy walk looks like, he reminds them of the sacrifice necessary in following Jesus. So make no mistake about it, a worthy walk will require sacrifice. The sheer fact that Paul was writing this from prison spoke volumes about what he was going to say about how to walk. It meant that following Jesus was not just some nice, comfortable way to solve your problems and be, and be comfortable for the rest of your life. Real radical Christianity is risky and it's unpopular. It's dangerous even. And that's the kind of power Paul wants behind these words that he's writing. It's the kind of power that we feel when we hear about people like Tahir Iqbal, a Muslim convert to Christianity in Pakistan. He was imprisoned for his faith on December 7th, 1990, and he died in prison, July 19th, 1992. He was a paraplegic, and he was confined to a wheelchair while in prison. And when threatened with being hanged, he said, I will kiss my rope, but I will never deny my faith. John Piper says that kind of talk from prison, like Paul's, is like a stiff, awakening winter wind in the face of our drowsy, television-soaked, self-pitying kind of Christianity. It wakes us up and makes us dress spiritually for the winter battles. That's what Paul wants to happen when we read his testimony from prison. And I think that's why he reminds his readers where he is. A worthy walk will require sacrifice. So having reminded everyone of this, Paul goes on to challenge his readers to walk worthy of the calling to which they have been called. Verse 1. Paul has explained and illustrated the gospel in the first three chapters of Ephesians, and now he wants his readers to know how they're supposed to conduct themselves in a way that's in keeping with the gospel that they've just heard about. The idea of calling actually goes back to the first chapter, verse 18, when Paul said, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This means to call forth or to call out of, just like Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave. Just as he called you to come forth out of the grave of your sin and to be raised to do life in Christ. God has called us to himself by his grace. And now that we've heard and responded to his call by his grace, Paul says that we're supposed to live worthy of that calling. Well, how could we do this? How could we ever hope to live up to that kind of a calling in our lives? Well, Paul doesn't answer this question just yet. First, he goes on to describe in detail what the calling to walk worthy of looks like. Before we look at the things Paul lists, I want to point out how he emphasized God's greatness in our need again. Look at verse 1, the end of it. Who is doing the calling here? God is, that's right. And who's being called? It's sinners. It's you and I, people like us, who make up the church. This common calling unites us together then, doesn't it? No one can claim that they had knowledge of how to walk worthy before being called. So no one should really boast after they've been called. We share a common experience of God's grace. 
Now Paul begins a list. And I don't, I don't think it's meant to be an exhaustive list necessarily, but these are definitely some things that indicate whether someone is walking worthy of their calling or not. Again, Paul doesn't tell us how on earth we're supposed to do this just yet. He just tells us what to do. And what he says in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4 are descriptions of Christian conduct. He lists them. He says, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, and maintaining unity of the Spirit. Let's start with the first one on Paul's list. And it's not surprising that Paul puts humility first on the list. Paul holds up humility throughout his letters as an essential characteristic of believers. And so I'm going to talk about this one probably a little bit more than the others on this list. Now, Paul tells the Philippian church, he says, to be of one mind and to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He says that in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. For unity to exist in the church, humble and selfless people must be living for the good of others, not just themselves. So what's the opposite of humility? Right, pride. So pride is is thinking mostly of yourself, being filled up with self. Humility, on the other hand, is being filled with God. I like the way Rick Warren says this. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, It's thinking of yourself less. C.S. Lewis says that a truly humble man will not be thinking about humility. He won't even be thinking about himself at all. He goes on to say that if anyone would like to acquire humility, he says, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that you are proud. And that's a big step because nothing can be done before it. If you think you are not proud, it means you're very proud indeed. In a culture that insists that we put ourselves first and foremost, Jesus modeled humility. But not just when it was easy, or when it served his purposes, or when it led to the things that made him happy, or when it was lots of fun. Paul tells the Philippian church that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. We sometimes have the attitude, well, Jesus was perfect and I'm not, so surely I can't be held to the same standard. You know, of course Jesus could be that humble. He's God. Well, Brothers and sisters, you and I don't get off the hook here by having a defeatist or irresponsible attitude about humility. Before Paul says these things about Jesus in Philippians 2, he tells the regular old church members, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5 says. So we're supposed to walk in humility, not self-centeredness. We're also called, Paul says, to walk in gentleness or meekness. This does not mean tentativeness or timidity or especially not fear. It actually means being self-controlled. When you look at your spouse 
or your church leader or your kid or even your president, you're looking right into the eyes of a full-fledged sinner. And for that reason alone, you're going to need humility and gentleness to respond to them. Even when someone else is not displaying the same level of self-restraint, you're still called to walk in gentleness and in self-control. When you're in a difficult kind of a situation with someone and you respond in anger and lack self-control, honestly, it says more about you than it does about them. Proverbs 15.1 reminds us that a soft or tender or gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Gentleness or meekness has also been described as power under control. And I couldn't help but think of James chapter 3. There he personifies the tongue as a spark. And we know when used appropriately, a spark can give life to a freezing person in the cold. It can be a wonderful, beneficial, life-saving kind of a thing. But when used inappropriately or incorrectly, a spark can bring death as it sets whole forests ablaze. James tells us in chapter 3, verse 6, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell itself. Words have incredible power, don't they? James goes on to say in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 3, with it, talking about the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. But then James makes two connection points with our text today in James chapter 3, verse 13. He says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Let him make his works clear by living a life of gentle wisdom, the ASB says. If we're to be wise, we must, by our good conduct, by our worthy walk, we must live a life of gentle wisdom. I don't normally consult the Message Bible very often, but I did this week and I felt it was helpful in this section of James. It says, it puts it this way, Do you want to be counted wise? Here's what you do. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. It's the way you live, not the way you talk that counts. Mean-spirited ambition isn't wisdom. Boasting that you're wise isn't wisdom. Twisting the truth to make yourselves sound wise isn't wisdom. It's the furthest thing from wisdom. So Paul, continuing on in our list, he adds patience. Most of us... I think pray like this, Lord, please give me patience, but don't make me wait very long for it. And please, Lord, would you just hurry up and give me patience now? That we laugh because this is true of of all of us. We don't really know how to ask God for patience very well. And when he's teaching it to us, almost none of us see that it's from God. I think patience is connected with the next item too on the list, bearing with one another in love. To do life together with a bunch of other sinners, you better believe we need patience in order to bear with one another in love. In order for our churches 
to be unified. God doesn't say we need, all need to attain to a certain level of biblical knowledge. This certainly aids in our communication of truth with one another, but that's not the end goal. Knowing biblical facts does not equal spiritual maturity because it's easy to learn facts, isn't it? It's easy to learn those things, but it's difficult to be patient with people. So if you show me a man or a woman who displays great patience and bears with obstinate church members in love, I'll show you a person who's living a worthy walk. So let me condense these things this way. If you're humble, you will be gentle. And if you're patient, you will bear with one another. And doing these things maintains the spirit of unity in the body. But I also want to call our attention to verse 3. We're not supposed to just get along in the church because we have to. Um, that would be kind of like the equivalent of telling your feuding and fighting kids to just apologize and make nice and not actually really care if it's sincere. Have they really captured the intent of your instruction to reconcile if all they say is, I'm sorry, do you forgive me? No, probably not. I mean, do they genuinely give and accept forgiveness and love? Or are we just making practicing hypocrites by demanding fake apologies? We don't love one another in the church with gritted teeth because we have to, all the while burying bitterness beneath fake love. Instead, we plead with God for a heart that truly loves our brothers and sisters that in humility, gentleness, and patience bears with them so that the church reflects the unity of the Godhead itself. I think that's where Paul is going with all of this. We should be eager to maintain unity in the body because God is unified in himself. Notice that Paul says, maintain the unity of the spirit. Brothers and sisters, it's God who unites us. And we are to maintain that unity, not by our efforts, but by the Spirit's empowerment. We, we should eagerly seek to maintain unity, but we don't toil to create it. That's a work of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit that we should be so diligent for is based on a given, objective unity outside of ourselves that we have nothing to do with creating or defining. It's there and we are humbly to recognize it and submit to it and rejoice in it and live it out, John Piper says. Let me make something clear at this point, because I don't want to confuse things. We are definitely told to strive for unity, but we don't pursue unity at the cost of minimizing or forsaking the truth. Truth absolutely matters. In just a few verses from this, Paul will challenge them to attain maturity, to pursue maturity, not to be tossed back and forth by lies and deception like children. Instead, he says to speak the truth in love. Because truth and love are not mutually exclusive. Okay, that, that means it's not just one or the other kind of a thing. They can actually coexist together. And I would argue that Paul says they have to if the body is going to reflect God's unity properly. We must have the demeanor that says, I'm not the center. Truth is the center. And I submit to the truth and go where it leads. 
I'm not king. God is king. My will is not the law. God's word is the law. I don't tell God how many faiths are acceptable to him. He tells me. I don't define the foundation of the unity of the spirit. God does. Now look at verse 4, 5, and 6. This is what unity looks like. There's only one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. Jews and Gentiles were being gathered together into one church. And this was brought about by the one spirit. Now, notice that the term Lord used in verse 5 is different from the term Father that Paul uses in verse 6. Now, all throughout the Gospels, this is the term that was used when referring to Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God in the flesh. This is why I said earlier that this is a model of unity within the Trinity, the Godhead. There's one Spirit, there's one Lord, there's one Father. Tony Merida says it this way, The triune God not only creates the unity we have as believers, but also serves as the ultimate picture of unity. Now, Paul has just laid out a list of things that will identify those who are walking worthy of their calling, but they are incredibly difficult things to do, aren't they? Now, how can we do this, Paul? I realize the task before me as I live for Christ, but how can I ever hope to live up to this calling? Look at verse 7. I think Paul gives us our answer here. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given. The same grace that saved you will be worked out by the power of the Spirit to teach you how to live out your faith, how to walk worthy of your calling. As Christ was given over as a sacrificial offering, a free gift, he then gives gifts to each believer. This will be the content of what we talk about next week, what gifts are given and why. Um, but look at verse 8. Here Paul quotes Psalm 68, verse 18. Here's the cool part of this. Psalm 68 is a hymn of victory. Now when a conquering king would return home, he would bring back the spoils of war. And what would he do with them? He wouldn't just stick them all in a storehouse, the treasury, and maybe some of it he would, but when he brought back spoils from war, he would share them with the people in his kingdom. So Paul takes this familiar idea and he uses it to illustrate something deeper. Having triumphed over sin, death, hell, the grave itself, our Savior King comes back to his people giving gifts to all those in his kingdom. The king gives gifts to his people. Verses 9 through 10 are parenthetical. This is where Paul speaks more of this victory. Paul sees the incarnation, right, God becoming man, as Jesus' descent to the lower regions, the earth, and his ascension as evidence that Jesus is the conquering king. He says that Jesus came all the way down to earth to save and has now gone all the way up to reign. Here's more of Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's out of that overflow of victory that Paul is going to talk about the gifts of the king in verses 11 through 16 that we'll look at next week. Brothers and sisters, unity doesn't start with us, but we strive for it eagerly to reflect God's glory more clearly. Christ is above all. Christ is over all. Christ gives gifts to all of his people. And verse 10 tells us that Christ fills all. It takes a work of the Spirit to initiate and maintain togetherness in the body. So let's pray for it together this morning. God, we desire unity here. But not just unity over earthly commonalities. Lord, we desire the unity that comes only by the Spirit. And so we want to be Spirit-filled and Spirit-led, both individually as believers, but also as a church body. God, we thank you so much that we have an understanding based on what Paul has shared in the first 10 verses of chapter 4 here of what it looks like to walk worthy of the calling with which you have called us. And if we've been saved, you absolutely have called us out of sin and death and into life. And this is how we are to walk. And Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We can't even do this properly, just all being together. We have to have your spirit moving in and through all of us all the time. And so I pray that you would give the spirit in greater measure to this church and the people in it, to me, to the leaders who teach and lead and to those who are seeking to honor you with their gifts. Lord, may you fill our whole church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.